And I want to set up um, the end of the sermon here at the beginning. We don't do this that often here at Christ Community Church, but occasionally at the end of a sermon, because just the way it comes together and the way it ends, I have an invitation to you to come forward. And so if you sense the Holy Spirit working on your heart to do that during the sermon, then that's an open invitation. I'll be over here at the side if it's helpful for um, you to have somebody to pray for you. But otherwise, it's really an invitation to come and just sort of uh, solidify what God has spoken to you. And just you might want to stand, you might want to kneel, whatever would be helpful to you. And so I just want you to make you aware of that. Of course, all that can happen in your seat. I don't think the Holy Spirit's just up here in the front row. But sometimes it's just helpful to make a movement, to, to, to say, yes, something has happened, and I want to sort of solidify it, and to, to get up and move forward in some way helps us physically to remind us of something that's been happening to us spiritually. So would you pray with me as we begin our sermon? Holy Spirit, we are praying now again for your work to be done in the hearts of men and women here, young and old. May you take my words and use them for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. The purpose of our series here in the Gospel of John is to really equip you with the basic understanding of the Gospel. And so so that you would have a sense not only of the letter but the contents of the letter, the contents of the gospel. So as you walk through your life and you cross paths with people, that you would then be capable of helping them uh, know who Jesus is. If you ran across this young woman that Hal Hyatt talked about, who was a college student who didn't know anything about Jesus, we're hoping that you would be equipped to make the introduction rather than saying, hey, I'm sorry you don't know anything about Jesus. Let me find a pastor who can introduce you. We're, we're hoping that you can make the introduction. And the primary way I make that introduction with folks is I go through these little booklets that are in the office. You've seen me talk about them before. And it's really just the Gospel of John. There's really not anything more than these booklets. It's five chapters a, book, a booklet. And so I just go through these booklets. I met with somebody last Saturday, and we just talked through three chapters, John chapter 8, 9, and 10. And that really helps them know who Jesus is because they read through the Gospel of John. I'm also sitting there with them talking about things, and I'm getting to know them. And so I think that's been an effective way for people to really understand who Jesus is. And so we're encouraging you uh, to do that. But when you come to these verses here in chapter 14, 15, and 16, and you read about the Holy Spirit, and you say the words Holy Spirit to somebody who's not in tune with the Bible, what do you say? I mean, you feel the tension, don't you? Hey, lost person, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. Well, that just makes me start getting nervous, and I'm a pastor. And it feels a little uh, foggy. It feels a little ghost-like. It feels, and we've heard the, the term Holy Ghost. And so you're the person who's going to communicate about the Holy Spirit to this person. What are you going to say? Hey, tell me about the Holy Spirit. What do you say? I talked to my friend Rob Campbell, the pastor at New Beginning, about my sermon this week. And his quote was this, oh, that's interesting you're preaching on the Holy Spirit because you all, and I think he meant white preachers by that, 
You all don't talk much about the Holy Spirit, do you? J.I. Packer says this, Christian people are not in doubt as to the work that Christ did, but the average Christian is in a complete fog as to what the work of the Holy Spirit does. So you can make your assessment on whether Robert Campbell or J.I. Packer is correct, but I think we can all say that when it comes to Jesus, we have some confidence of explaining that he lived and he did these things and he said certain things and he died and what that death might mean. But then when it comes to the Holy Spirit, it just feels like it's a little bit past our reach. We can say some things, but then we quickly get on ground that seems a little bit unfamiliar. And so this morning, I just want to talk about the Holy Spirit, maybe in a way that I would talk about it to somebody that I was sitting with on a Saturday morning and talking about these verses. So number one, I think it's helpful to understand from the Bible that the Bible clearly states that mankind is not just a physical being, but also a spiritual being. So when you're just starting out with the conversation with somebody, just help them that you're, help them understand you're making this assumption that their humanity, their being a person is made up of these two main components. They are a physical being. They have, you know, real hands and real feet and real skin, but they also are a spiritual being. And these two components come together to make somebody a human being. It's a, it's the combination of a material body animated by or filled with life by an immaterial person or a soul or a self. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, you may remember when God was forming man from the dust. It says this, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the, the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And this just isn't a, a simply a, an exchange of oxygen. It's, it's, making, it's God making man in his image, giving him a spirit. It's, it's giving him life, not just in terms of his, his ability to breathe, but a, a spiritual life. One commentator says, here we have, commenting on Genesis 2, here we have the strange combination of dust and deity producing a marvelous creation. So however you would say it, a combination of dust and deity, a body and a soul, a physical being and a spiritual being, those are the necessary components of being a human being. And of course, as you look through the Bible, the Bible references the work of the, or the, the spirit of man in many different ways. And let me just read several of those to you. Numbers chapter 16, Moses fell face down and cried out, O oh God, God of the spirits of all mankind. He's crying out to God and he says, God of the spirits of all mankind. Psalm 51, this confession of David, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Ecclesiastes 12, the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Matthew 10:28 Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell 
Matthew 26, this is in the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus says, watch and pray to his disciples who are there with him so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Luke chapter 23, Jesus answered, now he's on the cross. He answers the thief on the cross. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, how is it the the thief on the cross is going to be with Jesus in paradise? Not physically, but spiritually. He understands that this man on the cross is a being, and and that's part, part physical and part spiritual. And Jesus is going to be in paradise, and this man is going to be with Jesus spiritually in paradise. And then the passage that we read from Acts chapter 7, they're stoning Stephen, and Stephen cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And so uh, that's common biblical understanding, but I would say just in the culture, most people understand those two things somehow working together. If you go to the YMCA, you'll see a little emblem on their uh, floor at one point, and it's got a triangle, and the YMCA is trying to minister to the whole person, and it says, mind, body, and spirit. They understand that when a person walks in, it's just not a physical being that walks in, it's a spiritual being that walks in. I've talked to many people about Christ, and they'll say something like this, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. You've heard that, I'm sure. And what they're trying to say, at least, is, I know I'm not just a physical being, I'm also something else, and I don't really maybe know even what that else is, but it's a spiritual being. I'm, I'm somehow made up of a, as, as a spiritual being as well. And of course, you've heard the term soulmate. You find somebody that you're, you're connected to, not just physically, but you're connected to spiritually, and you'll say, oh, they're my soulmate. In other words, there's some, something beyond just a physical, physical connectivity. There's a, this spiritual connectivity. And so we call that person our soulmate. And so when we get here to John chapter 14, 15, and 16, we're, we're in the final days of Jesus' life. He's talking to his disciples about his departure. There's this growing darkness, this growing anxiety, and it's creating some confusion. And so three different times, 14, 15, and 16, Jesus brings up the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, yes, I'm going to be away from you physically, but I want you to take comfort in the fact that I'm going to be with you spiritually. And so in chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus actually says, it's to your advantage that I go away. What an unusual verse. Here he's been with these disciples for three years, and he's saying in the midst of this coming darkness It's going to, trust me, it's going to be an advantage to you if I actually go away. If I physically go away from you, there's going to be an advantage to you because spiritually I'm going to be able to be with you in a new and different way. And, of course, this could be a whole sermon as to why it might be an advantage, but just a couple of reasons here. First of all, the the departure, um, Jesus' departure, uh, would be uh, led by, by, let me say it this way, the, the full design of what God has in mind will come to the disciples after Jesus' departure. See, they have something much more limited in mind. When Jesus is with them, they're going to make him a physical king. 
and he's going to reign over Israel. And they, they're always prejudiced, and they're narrow, and they're small in their thinking. And when Jesus dies and is resurrected and the Holy Spirit comes, then it's just going to bust wide open. And even Peter, he says when, um, I think this is when he comes to the Roman uh, soldier Cornelius' house, and Cornelius receives the Spirit, and he says, now I know even the Gentiles are going to come into the kingdom of God. So it's, it's expanding and exploding open in a way the disciples would have never been able to see if Jesus had remained with them physically. And, of course, Jesus' earthly departure and the, the coming of the Holy Spirit means that now Jesus spiritually can be in every corner of the globe. As a physical being, where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of God the Father. That's what the Bible says clearly in, in Acts chapter 7. So if you want to be physically with Jesus, you've got to be at, at the right of the right hand, right? That's a lot of rights in there. But how can you be with Jesus spiritually? Well, his Holy Spirit can come and be with us and also can be in us. And so we, living in the year 2012, we live in a, in a very advantaged time in redemptive history. In the way God is, is moving through the world in time, you and I live in a place that has tremendous advantage. It's, it's the best place to live in all of human history in some sense. And Jesus is, that's why Jesus said, it's beneficial to you. See, in the Old Testament, you're, you're watching God the Father begin to move through time, and he's setting up these shadows to say that there's someone coming. It's God the Son. And so you see that through the Lamb of God in a number of other different places. But if you were in the New Testament and Jesus was there, you'd say, well, he is God the Son. He has come. But now after the, the after Jesus' ascension, we're living with the Holy Spirit. So we have we have the advantage of reading about God the Father, reading about God the Son, and having the Holy Spirit bring us into the truth of these things coming together. So it's a great advantage. But I get I'm guessing most of you feel like I have felt at different times. I just wish I could have been there when Jesus did. Maybe I could really, really believe him if I could just have seen him. And I understand that. But you know from reading your Bible, seeing something does not necessarily breed faith. In fact, many people saw what Jesus did and called him a demon. And so now we have the Holy Spirit in a way that is prior, prior to the New Testament hadn't really been working. Now is working in us to help us. So it's a great advantage. Who is the Holy Spirit? And here again, we could have a whole book written on this. There are books written on it. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a person. When we sing the hymn, holy, 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 what does it say? God in three persons, blessed Trinity. You notice here, in, especially in chapter 16, look at verse 13 with me. Chapter 16, verse 13. And when the spirit of truth comes, he 
will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own. But whatever he hears, he speaks, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus isn't saying it is going to come. A force or a power is going to arrive. He's saying a divine person is going to arrive. Just like your, your spiritual being is a, is a being, the Holy Spirit is a person. We can refer to, to him as a person. And the Holy Spirit regularly is assigned personal characteristics in the Bible. He speaks, he teaches, he guides, he helps. The Holy Spirit loves. You can lie to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. A power cannot be grieved. A person can be grieved. And so the Holy Spirit is not a power like the Jehovah's Witnesses think. And the Holy Spirit is not the force like you think if you grew up in Star Wars. That there's some sort of divine force out there, and if you can tap into the force, then you can manipulate situations. That's not the Holy Spirit, if that's what you're thinking. One scholar put it this way so excellently. The conception of the Holy Spirit as a divine power that we get and hold and use. If you think of the Holy Spirit as a divine power that you get and hold and use, it leads to self-exaltation. One who thinks they have the divine power rather than a divine person will inevitably be full of spiritual pride and think they belong to some superior order of Christians. But if we grasp the reality that the Holy Spirit is a divine person who has in marvelous condescension come into our lives to take possession of us and make use of us, then we will be humbled. I can think of no more humbling thought than the divine majesty and glory dwelling in my heart and preparing to use me. A power is something you possess. A divine person is someone who possesses you. So we have to really get that straight. Because if you think of the Holy Spirit as some divine power, then you grab a hold of it and you use it in some way. And that's not what's happening ever with God. God might grab a hold of you and use you, but you're not going to grab a hold of him and wield him around. That's not the way it works. But see, if we have those things backwards, all kinds of weird things can happen in the name of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person, and if he dwells in us, it's a humbling thing that that happens. And he comes to us to use us for works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. Well, the Holy Spirit is not, not a power, but a person, but he's also a divine person. And you see this in many ways. Psalm 139, the psalmist says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your Presence. In other words, there's, there's no place that the Holy Spirit doesn't exist. You see it in uh, the Great Commission when Jesus says, Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, what? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus himself is putting these three people together. And, of course, when we read the Nicene Creed, it says we believe, believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son with the Father and the Son. He is worshipped 
and glorified. So as, as human beings, we're spiritual beings. And God in his grace sends the Holy Spirit to interface with us on a spiritual level. And so that's why you would hear people say who are Christians, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I know you've heard that before. Well, what are they saying? They met Jesus? Well, not physically. They're not saying that. They're saying they met Jesus in a spiritual sense. My spiritual being connected with the Holy Spirit, and we have a personal relationship with each other. And it's as every bit as real as the encounter as you might have physically. So what is the specific role of the Holy Spirit, specifically as it's listed in these verses? Let's look at this, chapter 16. You'll notice in all the chapters that he's called a helper in the ESV. Some of it says counselor or comforter. And the Greek word is a word you may have heard of before, the paraclete. Somebody who comes alongside or calls alongside. So this this being who's coming alongside and, and calling out to you or coming alongside and helping you see something. And, of course, I think the different English translations help us and also can hurt us. Personally, when I think of a helper... Somehow I think of somebody who's sort of subservient, somebody who's underneath everybody else. Oh, he's the help. And so I don't really like that. Counselor, I think of a camp counselor, a marriage counselor. So I wouldn't want you to have that. Uh, comforter, it feels like a spiritual snuggie, you know, like I got into my comforter and I now I feel great about myself or whatever. And, I mean, I think those can be okay, but really really, the, the term in the Greek that's most translated into the, to the English is an advocate. It's really meant to be legal counsel. There's a problem that somebody's in jeopardy, somebody's in judgment, somebody's come against an accuser, and we need an advocate. We need somebody to come alongside of us and speak truth and be for us and speak into the situation. And so the the Holy Spirit, I think, better here is an advocate. And my question when I come to that word, well, what is he what is he advocating? What kind of case is the Holy Spirit making? And the answer is he's first of all, he's making a truthful case. You see that in each text, chapter 14, verse 17, chapter 15, verse 26, and chapter 16, verse 12. You see this? It says, um, I still have many things to say to you. This is 16, verse 12, but you cannot bear them now when the spirit of truth comes. So whatever this, whatever the Holy Spirit is going to come do, he's going to say the truth. And that what that's what needs to be spoken into our lives and into our situations. And then in these verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 of chapter 16, he talks about the three specific truths the Holy Spirit is going to advocate. One, he will convict the world concerning sin. Two, he will convict the world concerning righteousness. And three, he's going to convict the world concerning judgment. Chapter 16, verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. 
concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So Jesus is saying, my spirit is going to come. He's going to tell the truth. He's going to be somebody who advocates for the truth. He's coming into the world to advocate for the truth. And the Holy Spirit is going to come in and say specifically three things. He's going to talk about sin, he's going to talk about righteousness, and he's going to talk about judgment. And so let's just end as we look at those three things. First, concerning sin. It's the role of the Holy Spirit to come alongside those who do not believe in Jesus and bring them to a conviction of their sin. To to press into this person who doesn't believe in Jesus the weight and reality of God. Psalm 32. This is David holding sin in his soul. And see if you can um, identify with his words. When I kept silent, when I kept my sin inside, I felt like my bones were being wasted away. I was groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. And then then listen to this release. When I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And I wonder if you've ever felt that heavy weight of the reality of God pressing in on your soul, convicting you of your sin. You were trying to hide it. You were thinking, well, if I'm the only one who sees it, it's as if it's not being seen or it's not being known. And I can remember it as if it happened yesterday in the sixth grade. I lived in a little town called Lawton, Oklahoma, and I went to First Baptist Lawton, Oklahoma. And I went to uh, the Sunday evening services with my friend Scott. His dad was the minister of music. And the only reason I went is because First Baptist Lawton, Oklahoma had a cool gym. And so at Sunday night after the service is over, because his dad worked for the church, you know, we had about a half an hour to shoot around. So the payment for the shoot around was you had to sit through one more boring service on Sunday night, right? And so I went and I sat in the second row on the, you've you've seen this crushed red velvet, you know, uh, padding and where you, you move your hand across it and try to make designs and stuff. That's what I did when I was in the sixth grade. And so I'm there on a Sunday night. I could not recall anything that happened on that Sunday night with the sermon or a song or anything. I'm totally just totally doodling with the little small pencils that are never sharpened on the piece of paper. And that's where I was as a sixth grader. But the other thing that was happening that I really was unaware of was destruction was happening in my soul. I'd gotten in a crowd of uh, military boys, and they were teaching me new four-letter vocabulary words. I, I realized in the sixth grade, it wasn't that hard to lie to your parents. They're, they're not, they're not om, omniscient. 
And there are some things you can get away with. And so I had started lying to my parents. And then I had another friend whose dad had some magazines that he would hide in his house, but we found them. And so I find myself spending the night at his house looking at these magazines. I had no idea the destructive nature that was taking place on my spiritual being in the sixth grade. I didn't realize what kind of danger I was in imminently, and I didn't realize what kind of danger I was in eternally. But the Holy Spirit did. And so like a freight train, I sat in that second row completely waiting to play basketball, and the Holy Spirit just hit me like a train. And I thought everybody was staring at me, and I felt compressed like, oh, my gosh, my sin's been exposed to everybody here in this service. And it was like a force. It was like a power. It was like a presence that had come around me. I was like, what is going on? Let me get out of here. Let me go shoot baskets. Let me try to try to get away from this. And so the pastor comes down, he stands up front, and he's, you know, a good Southern Baptist. We've got to sing just as I am in case anybody has got a dealing with the Holy Spirit. And, of course, I didn't really even know what he was talking about until that, that night. And I, you know, I'm sixth grade. I can't walk down the aisle. I mean, no way. Nobody comes down the aisle on Sunday nights anyway. That was my assessment. And so we sing the song, you know, we sing it through several times. I mean, several stanzas, way more, because no one's coming. And so I'm making this little negotiation with God. I'm saying, God, if, if he goes back to the first line, which there's no reason he should, I'll come down the aisle. And wouldn't you know, for Siler. He just stood up there and said, you know, I sense that the Holy Spirit is working on someone's soul. So, can we just sing the first verse one more time? I don't remember even saying anything. I walked down, I just burst into tears. The reality and weight of God came crushing into my life and I'm so glad he did because I was in such danger I had no idea the the spiritual danger I was in and I'm so glad that the Holy Spirit completely unannounced came in and just put weight down on my spiritual being to get me to move and say I've got to go in some different direction than I'm currently going and that same power, that same weight, because that same person is real, can be dealing with you right now. That's the first thing the Holy Spirit has to do in the life of somebody, is to make himself real and your sin real. And when that becomes real, the first thing you feel is pressure. You understand that you're in trouble, you're in danger. Something has to happen on my behalf. Something I've done, something I've, I've said, something I've seen. I can't just take it away. Somebody has to come in and rescue me from this situation. And so we have an advocate that comes in and speaks the truth 
to us about our sin. And then he, he convicts us of the righteousness of Christ. The, the righteousness of Christ. When Jesus was on the earth, what he was accused of being is either crazy, blasphemer, or demon-possessed. And so he's got an accuser. You're not who you say you are. You're crazy. You're blaspheming. You're, you're, you're demon-possessed. And the proof of who Jesus was not was not in his death. The proof of who Jesus was was in his resurrection and in his ascension to God the Father. And so Jesus Christ has come and he has proven that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ because he took our sins and he buried those sins and he rose from the grave. And now he stands at the right hand of God the Father making intercession saying, anyone can come this way. Anyone can come this way. The worst of sinners, even people like Paul Phillips, can come this way. Because he's made a way from earth back in to the presence of God. Amen? So he comes and he makes a conviction of sin. And then he says, here's a righteousness that is not your own. And you can have it. It is my righteousness. And finally, he makes a conviction concerning the judgment of Satan. The, the ruler or prince of this world has been judged. Satan is not an advocate. Satan is an accuser. In, in the spiritual world, Satan stands in a courtroom and he's, a, he's accusing you and he's accusing me before God saying, Look at this person. You couldn't possibly want this person. And, of course, he has a long list of things that he can accuse you of and accuse me of. But the Holy Spirit comes in and mercifully says to a sixth grade boy, not guilty. Not guilty. I took that. I paid for that. Satan is cast out of the courtroom. Paul says this in Romans 8. Who dares accuse those whom God has chosen? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he is pleading for us. If you've seen these things, if you've seen your sin, if you've seen the righteousness of Christ, if you've seen Satan defeated and cast out, then you can thank the Holy Spirit. And then just notice in verse 14 of chapter 16, he, he's advocating for truth and he's giving glory or weight to Jesus The Holy Spirit isn't a power or a force. He's a, he's a person. And notice, the Holy Spirit doesn't even bring attention to himself. 
the Holy Spirit is like a floodlight. And he's just showing you the, the magnificence of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is not magnifying himself. The Holy Spirit is not magnifying you. And so if the work of the Holy Spirit in you magnifies you, then you might wonder what kind of work it actually is. Because the Holy Spirit is magnifying the glory of Christ. That is what he's advocating for. He's trying to help us see this is the person that you want to see. This is the person that you want to follow. Well, like I said in the beginning of the sermon, I'm going to give you a chance to respond. I'm not going to sing five or six verses of just as I am. And like I said, the Holy Spirit can deal in different ways with different people. But there is something about saying, God, I remember that day in March of 2012 where you, you hit me like a freight train about something in my soul. It may have not had anything to do with what I said this morning. And it's just time to, to, to come and lay that down or to make that right with God. I, I will stand over here if it's helpful to have somebody to pray for you. But if not, come and, and kneel before the Lord and bring that for him.